Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a free show. All episodes are offered freely. Your support makes a difference. If you like the program and you want to support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash other pod. Oh, thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Hey there. This is Brad Listy. I'm the Other People Show host. This is the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. I have Megan O'Giblin on the program. She has an essay collection out from Anchor Books. It's called Interior States. It is the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online literary community. It has its own monthly book club. The way it works is you get a book delivered to your door every month, and then I interview the author on this program. That's what's happening here. It's an enriching cultural experience. I had a good time talking with Megan O'Giblin. That conversation is coming up in just a second. I do want to answer some questions, or at least a, a couple of questions from listeners. I have a listener named J.M. Dalton who says, what's a question that you regret asking? What's a question that you regret not asking? I think I regret sometimes asking questions that have to do with really sensitive cultural issues. I mean, I think in, you know, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds on it because I feel like you do need to go there. But sometimes I feel like I either ask inartfully or I respond poorly or, you know, I'm not ready to have the conversation because I haven't thought it through yet. So it's usually stuff tied to race or gender. That's usually where I have like most of my regrets as a host after the fact. But I say that and I remember, uh, and I've probably made the same comment in conversation on the program recently, but it's been on my mind 
you know, as all of these like conversations are swirling and there's so much tension and conflict and everything. When I was growing up, the adage was that you were not supposed to talk about like politics, religion, and uh, what's the other one? Sex? I can't remember. Politics, religion, money. That's the other one. Don't talk about politics, religion, or money was always, you know, that was what was handed down to me. It's rude to talk about politics, religion, you know, and money. I think that those are some of my favorite things to talk about. I think we actually need to talk about those things more. So I have kind of a uh, countervailing, is that the right word, opinion on that? Now, now I'm worried that I just misused the word countervailing. Hang on a second. <laughs> I might have totally misused that. I'm so, t- you know, my brain is shot. To act or avail against with equal power, force, or effect. Counteract. To furnish an equivalent of or a... Con- See, countervailing's not really the right word. There's a better word and it's escaping me. It's not counterintuitive. It's contradictory. That's the word I went. That's the word I wanted. I have a contradictory opinion on that. I think you should talk about money. I think you should talk about uh, religion and I think you should talk about politics, but ideally talk about it well. I think the general point is that I think we just need to have these conversations out in the open more and it'll ventilate things. But I know that they can get sticky, which is where I think the maxim comes from in the first place, because it tends to lead to, you know, polarization and conflict and miserable Thanksgiving dinners and all the rest. Ben Tanzer asks, what happened next? <laughs> uh, what? But like it's in past tense. It's very confusing. Uh, what happened next? I wasn't sure. I feel like silence is good there as we all try to figure out what happened next. The verb tense on that one sort of threw me. Rebecca Hussey asks, uh, do you see yourself doing the podcast indefinitely? Do you think about quitting? What might make you quit? Please don't quit. I think ideally I will do the podcast. I, I, like I've said this before, but my, my goal is to podcast uh, until I'm 90. And possibly beyond. I, and I want to say I did the math. And if, you know, if I continue to do one episode a week for the rest of my life, I would get to like 3,000 episodes. Now, I say that and I, I have a very demanding job that takes up almost all of my time. And it is getting harder for me to do these interviews and, and to then produce the show. It's like, you know, I have a lot of demands on my time. So that would be the thing that would make me like have to hang it up or press pause. It's just, you know, I don't want to put like, here's the thing. It's gotta be, it's gotta be at a level that I feel like is worthwhile for everybody. I don't want to put out a bad show. I don't want to like put forth conversations where I feel like I I'm not doing the job because I'm too tired or my brain is just shot. But as long as I'm 
you know, delivering something that I feel good about and that the authors who come talk to me feel good about and that you guys feel good about, then I'll keep going. I like it. I've said that before. So I think that's it for uh, listener questions in this round. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. Let's get to the conversation with Megan O'Giblin. Her essay collection is called Interior States, and it is excellent. It is the official October selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It is available now. Go get your copy. Here she is, folks. This is Megan O'Giblin. So I grew up um, kind of all over the Midwest, um, mostly in Michigan, um, but my family moved around a lot. So we were in Michigan um, part of the time on the West Coast and part of the time on uh, sort of the east side of the state. We lived in Peoria for a little while. We lived in Wisconsin for a couple of years when I was in high school. And um, yeah, I mean, my my childhood was... I don't know how representative of the Midwest it was, but we were, um, you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian family. Um, I was homeschooled up until 10th grade. So my social life was really circumscribed to church, homeschool group, kind of these very um, cloistered Christian communities. Um, And yeah, I don't know, we... uh, I I didn't have a sense of, like, living anywhere in particular when I was growing up. I didn't have a sense of being a Midwesterner, um, which I think is actually probably, like, the most typical Midwestern experience. Like, there's, I think there's a case to be made that that is um, very typical of people who grew up in this region is this illusion that you just live, um, you know, in sort of an average American town or that there's nothing truly unique or regionally unique about the setting. Um, you know, I think it's different from somebody who grows up in the South or somebody who grows up in, say, Texas or somewhere uh, where you have this very intense sense of national identity or um, regional identity. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I've i written a lot about um, my childhood and growing up in evangelicalism. I grew up, you know, in the 90s at the height of the megachurch movement. So, there was like a very robust Christian youth culture. Um, you know, we were always going to these major 
conferences and concerts, Christian music, Christian contemporary music was huge when I was in high school. Um, and what were you, and like, what was the belief system? Is like, Jesus is, is the son of God. Mm-hmm. Is it like, yeah. is it like fire and brimstone? Like there's going to be, uh, <laughs> you know, there's going to be like a rapture. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All of that. So, um, when I was a child, yeah, we got a lot of, um, sort of the old school fire and brimstone, uh, particularly when I was like very young, um, we went to this very traditional Baptist congregation where the pastor talked about hell all the time. Um, there was also, yeah, the sense that the end times were imminent. Um, the theology we believe, believed in was very millenarian. It was very concerned with the end times and the future. Our pastor was constantly bringing up events from the news as evidence that you know, the prophecies were being fulfilled, that the tribulation was going to happen at any moment. I used to come home sometimes and find the house empty and be convinced that the rapture had happened and I was left behind, you know. So, like, this was a very, like... Wait, why was your house empty? Well, I don't know. You know, if I came home and I thought my parents were home and they were actually out in the yard or oh, something. Oh, oh, oh. I, you you, I thought you meant it had been, like, cleared out of, like, furniture. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, just the people. Only the people are raptured. All the real possessions. Oh, right. They don't take the couches and the... Uh... They don't take the couches <laughs> sinners and non-believers. Yeah, they all get left left behind. Uh, and what about, like, gay people, not good, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, very much. There was no sense of, um, you know, social justice, which is now I think there's a lot more diversity um, within the that within the evangelicalism itself. I think there's a lot more openness, as particularly among young people, toward like LGBT issues, toward social justice. Um, but when I was growing up, that yeah, that was not um, that was not the case at all. Yeah. So do you? I mean, do you think that there is a very direct through line between the evangelical movements or communities of the Midwest or the upper Midwest and those that might exist, say, in like South Mississippi or Texas. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, is it, is mm-hmm. it, is it the same thing or do you think it's, it's markedly different? Well, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't want to say, act like I'm an authority on this because I'm not, but my sense is that um, in the South, there's a stronger charismatic tradition than there is in the Midwest. Um, there's a lot more, um, so like Pentecostal churches where people are speaking in tongues and there's like snakes and spirit slaying and, and things like this. Um, that I think is a little bit more common in the South. In fact, when I was at Moody Bible Institute, um, which is where I went to college for two years, very small conservative Christian school in um, Chicago. I remember overhearing a professor saying that that was a common thing with these students who had come from sort of from Southern states to study theology, that they had to be, uh, that they sort of had to get assimilated to this more conservative Midwestern theology that didn't approve of things like that of speaking in tongues, say, or like even, um, like that's what you get busted for at Moody Bible college in your freshman dorm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That and like watching movies. We weren't allowed to watch movies or play cards. What about, what about, what about dancing? Is dancing happening? No. Yeah. No dancing. No, I think they've actually loosened up on that in like the past 
few years. But there, when I was there, there was no dancing. But there have to there has to be so much illicit stuff going on, right? Or are the people walking the straight and narrow if they're there? Um, there, yeah. I mean, there was a few people who were doing, myself included, illicit things while we were there. Um, but for, it's not the same as, you know, I don't know. I had a lot of friends who went to, like, liberal arts Christian colleges in the Midwest that are sort of more, I don't know, the places like, um, Wheaton. you know, even like, yeah, Wheaton, right. Where there's people who you're going there to get like, I don't know, you can study anything, but you're also getting a Christian education. So I think there's a lot more of sort of like a, a secretive party culture there than there is somewhere like Moody. Like everybody who was at Moody was there basically to go into full-time ministry. So you really got, I don't know, I think it sort of weeded out people who were, um, you know, looking for something else or whose parents had pressured them to go there. I don't know. I mean, I think there were people there who were maybe confused about their faith, I think, like I was. Um, but I think that was something that happened after they got there as opposed to, you know, people who were there who didn't want to be there for that reason. I got to say, it's a good name for a college. I mean, Moody Bible College. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like it has a nice ring to it. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Uh, it's after, yeah, the, the founder, Dwight L. Moody, who was like a famous American evangelist um, in the late 19th century. But yeah, it's funny. There is uh, in, on the north side of Chicago, there's a, a pub called Moody's Pub, which is not related at all to the school. But a lot of people, the students who did drink used to go there kind of as a joke. <laughs> subversive, uh, subversive Bible college humor. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know really what the joke was, but yeah. So um, I want to know about like your relationship to your faith as a young person. And I'm sure when you're impressionable and young and your parents are uh, raising you and you're surrounded by all of these adults who are sort of uh, guiding you along your way, you don't question it quite as much. And um, clearly at some point you you did. And can you just talk a little bit about how that happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't really question the faith at all when I was a child. And I think that's probably just um, proof of how completely sheltered we were as kids. Like, I literally didn't know any non-Christians. I mean, we had like some neighbors who were Catholic. Um, we would like pray for because they apparently weren't saved. But um, yeah, I mean, like our whole world, all of my extended family were evangelical Christians. So um, I didn't really start, I guess, questioning. I don't know if I was like gung-ho Christian growing up. Um, it was just sort of like the air we breathed in. It wasn't anything that felt like it had to be personal to me. Um, and then, yeah, when I went to Moody, um, you know, I did, I think I was exposed to the theology in a way that I hadn't been growing up, you know, because I think the the theology that the average evangelical child and adolescent gets is actually very shallow. You know, it's very, this sort of idea like, oh, Jesus is your best friend. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. And everything is sort of about this very emotional experience um, and having this personal relationship with Christ. And so then I get to Moody and we're reading, you know, the old parts of the Old Testament that I had never read. We're reading the book of Job, the book of Leviticus, you know, all of these sort of this violent military history that's 
you know, justified according to Christian theology, um, confronting things like the problem of, of evil, uh, hell. That was like a big thing for me was actually confronting the theology of hell for the first time. I guess from, yeah, from a doctrinal standpoint as opposed to just the, you know, fire and brimstone stuff I'd heard from the pulpit as a child. Um, and so, yeah, I started questioning a lot of stuff while I was there and started asking questions um, and didn't really get many satisfactory answers from the professors. Um, and then ended up having a faith crisis that lasted for several years. I, I left Moody after two years. I was supposed to stay for a four-year program. Um, and you were going yeah. to become a minister? A missionary. I wanted to be a missionary. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that was uh, part of what made it so difficult. Is like, how am I going to go, you know, try to convince other people of this belief system if I have all these doubts myself? And um, yeah, I don't know. I think part of the reason I left was like, I just have to like be alone and, and figure this out for myself and figure out what I think. You know, I felt like it was very difficult to figure out what I believed within that community because there was, um, I don't know, we were discouraged from asking too many questions. And uh, I felt really afraid, I think, of letting on how much doubt I had because, um, I don't know, people people would worry about you. Um, but they, would so, think, yeah. they, they would think that you, need, like you, were, you were not saved or you were going to stray and go to hell? Yeah, right, right, right. And, um, you know, I think adding to it, too, the, the um, doctrine we were taught at Moody was very... Um, Calvinist, which I don't know if that means anything to you or your listeners, but the uh, the theology we were taught was um, emphasized this idea of predestination, which means that um, you know you God chooses before you're born. Basically, everybody before they're born, God chooses who's going to be saved and who's not, and we actually don't have any free will. And this was an idea also that I had never heard when I was growing up. It wasn't something that I had been taught until I was at Moody. Um, and so on one hand, I was struggling with that because it seemed incredibly in, unjust to me that, you know, God just made this choice that there are people that are going to be sent to hell for no fault of their own. Um, and then also I started having this very like self-conscious fear that like, oh, maybe if I am having these doubts, then I'm not one of the elect. And I was never supposed to be a Christian, you know. So, I don't know. It, it was a it was a lot to be sort of processing at the time. And, uh, I yeah, I don't know. I, I think that was definitely contributing to sort of the fears and doubts that I had during that time. I've I always have I've always had a hard time having uh, or or processing relationships with people who are in say the evangelical faith tradition who believe that anybody who does not believe what they believe is not saved and is therefore going to burn for eternity in hell or whatever, suffer for eternity in hell. And yet they have, you know, you can have like friendly relations with these people. Uh, mm -hmm. I have, I have family members, you know, and it's like, Oh, everything's fine. But like, then, then there's always part of me that's going. So I guess they go home and just think to themselves like, yeah, he's going to burn. He, he doesn't get it, you know? And it, it's, a, yeah. it, I, I find it, um, if I'm being totally honest, I find it a little offensive. It's like, wow, like they really are judging the shit out of me. And like, as if they know, do you know what I'm saying? I feel like there's some, yeah. there's a lot of hubris in that. Well, do you also feel like, 
kind of offended that they're not trying to evangelize you if they really believe that. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> because like, that's like, my, my husband had this realization, like the first time he came back to visit my family at home, my, my grandfather like cornered him at breakfast and gave him the talk. Like, you know, you know that if you don't, you know, accept Jesus as your personal savior, the Bible says you're going to spend eternity in hell. And my husband was so offended. He was like, oh my gosh, how dare you say this? to me. And I was like, well, you know, technically my whole family believes this and sort of explain that to him, that this is basically the foundation of their worldview. And uh, then he got very upset that the rest of my family wasn't telling him (laughs) the same thing. It's like, well, if you really believe this, why, you know, why aren't you going out and telling everybody all the time that that's their fate? Um, But yeah, I don't know. It's it's a tricky situation because, yeah, of course, you're going to feel judged either way. And how did your family react to your doubt and confusion? Did you profess this to them, or was it something you kind of kept under your lid? Yeah, I didn't tell them right away. It was something that came out, well, I guess it was pretty soon after I left Moody that we had a, we had a talk about it. And yeah, there were like many fights about it. There was a lot of, um, <clears throat> we had a lot of difficult conversations. And I mean, I was after that the years after I left Bible school, I was kind of estranged for them, from them for a while. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I, eventually, we were able to repair things. And I'm actually very close to my family now. And we've kind of agreed just not to talk about it. Um, like, it comes up every once in a while. Um, but I think for the most part, we've kind of made peace with it. Yeah, that's kind of how my, I mean, I'm... My family's very Catholic, and I was never into it. And I mean, I, I don't know. We talk about all sorts of stuff. We talk like my politics and my religion are very different than my parents and my family in general. And with my parents, at least, it's kind of open. I, I, I've gotten to the point where we can just banter. I think they finally just like figured out that I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. You know. It's so not, you you left like pretty early, or you felt like you were never really uh, a Catholic, or I never connected. I mean, I was like an altar boy for like you know six months or a year when I was a kid, and I just remember it just made me feel tired and bad, and <laughs> you know, yeah. I was just like, ah, it just was not for me. Like, I just don't know how to describe it. But um, I'm actually, I think the irony is that I'm of the children and, uh, you know, of my parents' kids and of most of my cousins. And, you know, as I look out at my extended family, I don't know the details of everybody's lives, but I would, I would guess that I'm probably among the most intensely interested in spiritual matters. It's not that I'm not, yeah, it's not that I'm not interested. It's just that, um, you know, it's got to make, I'm looking for something that really makes sense to me and, and has like practical value and, doesn't involve the kind of judgment that I maybe felt growing up in Catholicism. And that's not to say that there's not things of value in Catholicism or that it doesn't work for some people. You know, like I don't, Mm -hmm. that's the whole thing. Like I don't want to judge, you know, uh, and I don't, um, but I, but I also, you know, I want to make sure that like intolerance is rooted out and, you know, religion is often like a bastion of intolerance. So Mm -hmm. it's confusing. And, you said earlier, uh, you referred to it as like your spiritual confusion. And the first thing that came to my mind was that, like, what a natural state that should be for human beings. Like, shouldn't we, yeah. all, shouldn't we all be confused? If, if like you're being honest about life and this incarnation that we find ourselves in somehow, 
and you're not expressing some degree of confusion, like you actually are operating with some kind of certainty, that mm-hmm. seems that seems absurd to me. Yeah, I know. I, I definitely feel the same way too. But yeah, I think it took me a while to get to that point. Um, you know, because I think when I was First, leaving the faith, and after I, I did go through a period of confusion, and then after when I decided I was an atheist, I was like very vehemently an atheist and very <laughs> much into like rationality. I was like reading like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and it's funny because I feel like there was a period, particularly like in the early aughts, where that sort of rationalism was very in vogue oh, and yeah. there was like this group called the new atheists and oh. it was like this part of this larger cultural trend that you know today i feel like a lot of people that are like my age and and younger you know i think there is much more openness towards spiritual things and toward like you said like what you're looking for like some sort of nod and judgmental um more open form of spirituality whether that's like you know, sort of new age traditions or Buddhism or, um, you know, I don't know, sort of these, uh, these more mystical forms of faith that allow for doubt. I I feel like, because I read a lot of those new atheists back in the early aughts and, you know, all throughout my twenties and thirties or whatever. And like, I'm totally with the new atheists when they are exposing uh, organized religions, uh, you know, for their hypocrisies and their evil deeds and their mm-hmm. co- their corruption, like on all that stuff. I'm like, wow, you know, like, it's pretty hard to argue with Hitchens when he's laying it out like that, you know, and it's pretty hard. Yeah, he's very convincing. Yeah, yeah. But where the new atheists lose me is with their certainty mm-hmm. and with the dogmatism around their non-belief, which to me feels very much the other side of, of the same coin of uh the certainty of belief. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, can't we, exactly. can't we just have some humility and say, we don't know what the fuck is going on here. Like that, that's what <laughs> well, I want. I think increasingly people are, I mean, like the thing is science is in like such a, such flux and uncertainty right now too. Like nobody even knows what's going on with like physics. You know, I think a lot of that, I don't know if it's because of developments in the past few years, if that's why, you know, it's it's harder to read those new atheists. It's harder to read people who have that kind of certainty because it's like, well, you know, a lot of things that we we thought were, you know, scientific as though they were like inscribed in the fabric of the universe are uh, seem increasingly uh, fragile and not as sure as they once were. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that we don't know. I think that's that's really where I've come down on it. Like, we we are very early in our existence as a species relative to like the long arc of cosmic time. And yeah, uh, I just think there's a lot to learn yet. And, you know, I also like, I don't know my mind, I seesaw so much cause I am like persuaded by this argument. Like, have you ever heard, have you ever seen like a riot of atheists, like a violent uprising of atheists? Like atheists tend to be pretty, <laughs> pretty peaceful. Like they're not, yeah. there, there are no like, uh, like atheist quote unquote, holy wars or unholy wars or whatever. Well, or is that I mean, wrong? There's like, well, I mean, you could say like sort of these Marxist experiments, like the Soviet union, like Stalinism. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's the counter argument that's often given given is that there are these sort of atrocities that are committed by materialist ideologies. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you can, you can say 
I don't know. I don't know where I stand on that, I guess, is my answer to that question. I probably don't either. Did you Did you by any chance read the Michael Pollan book about psychedelics? Because he's talking a lot about materialist thinking and how, you know, basically over the course of the book, he he goes from being very materialist to being much less so after yeah. like doing like an ayahuasca circle and taking I'm a... so interested in that I haven't read his book but I've listened to like every podcast he's been on okay yeah. and uh, I probably should just read it but I read the the Taolin book trip too and he kind of talks about um sort of that that experience too I don't know I have a lot of fear about psychedelics um but I also like I don't know I'm very uh I, I find it the people's experiences on them very seductive and i have a lot of curiosity about it and well i think that i think and it's like a it's a very uh big fixation of me on this show but i think it's because it's a bridge between uh the physical world and the you know what's tangible and knowable Mm -hmm. and the mystical and the mysterious you know and like um there's something very authentic about a psychedelic experience um, that you can't really explain away, especially if you take the right dose in the right setting. And um, I think that for me as a kid who had a lot of like confusion and anger and resistance to the tradition in which he was raised and in the culture that he was surrounded by, like I, I was spent the first half of my childhood in Wisconsin, but then in Indiana, um, I went to junior high and high school and that's like more of a, there's a more of a, a religious feel down there, like more of a Southern, mm-hmm. like there's more of a Southern, like social conservative feel to where I was raised, you know? And, um, I was kind of bristling against that. And, you know, I felt like psychedelic culture when I came to it as like a 17 or 18 year old, and I saw people taking these things <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and like, like got to like, you just, you witness people on this stuff and then you're in like a, you're at like a dead show or you're with your friends in the woods. And it's like, well, wow, this is what I wanted at church my whole life. Like, is this is the yeah. real shit? Like people are actually, people are actually like, uh, you know, I don't know, reconfiguring the way they relate to the universe and are making having big visions or whatever. I don't, I don't even know how to, how to to language it, but no, that sounds very, um, very appealing to me too. I think I'm just, I I know deep in my heart that I'd be the kind of person that has a really like irrevocably bad trip. Um, just because I have a lot of, uh, hellfire in my past and I, I just feel like all of that stuff would come to the surface. Uh, that I've spent a lot of time pushing down. I worry about and, that too. I worry about it yeah. too. But like the Michael Pollan book is, uh, you know, he goes, he, he emphasizes the importance of taking guided trips where you yeah. have, where you have like a, a shrink or a shaman or somebody who really knows how to guide people there with you, which is an incredibly appealing to me because, you know, I've got a son with uh, health challenges and I'm like, I know if I take this stuff, I'm just going to go into some spiral, you know, where I'm oh, like yeah. fixating on that. And I'm like, I don't know if I can put myself through that, but I, I guess if I had somebody that I talked to who was like very experienced at taking people down the rabbit hole, that would probably be the thing that would sway me. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I am always going back. I have like all my friends just in the past, I don't know, five years or so decided to start doing psychedelics. It's like a very new, I don't know if it's because of 
we're in the Midwest or what, but it's like, I feel like it was a very late thing here. Um, but yeah, I don't know. And then you hear stories about people who like come out on the other side and they're different people. Like they decide they want to give away all their possessions and become a missionary or something and go to movie and go to, go back to Moody Bible college. Yeah, what if I, that's the thing. What if I come out on the other side, this is what I'm saying. I have like all this stuff is still in my subconscious somewhere. Yeah. And so what if that's, that's who I come out on the other side is, you know, going back to Christianity. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it is. It is. I, I, I like. I like the um, you know the sense of getting out of your ego and connecting with the universe. I don't know. I guess I should just try meditation or something. I feel like that's sort of the safer way to go. But, so, but slower. Like, yeah, you have slower to do like years, and, decades of meditation to get to that point. I mean, some people have these like you know more rapid onset experiences of. Uh, you know, what is it called? Kensho or Satori or whatever it is. But most people, it's like a long slog. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. It's And it's certainly nothing like, I guess that some people claim that like when you actually do have the, these flashes of insight or you get into really deep states of meditation, there are some common, you know, commonalities between that and, and the psychedelic experience. But I, I don't know. The psychedelic experience feels pretty unique. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's probably not. Yeah. I, I have doubts about how close it could it could be. Well, it's but. it's funny too that you were talking about like remember how like the, you were saying the new atheism was kind of a thing in the early aughts. I feel like psychedelics are definitely having their moment in the late whatever this is teens of mm-hmm. the twenty first century. It feels like people are I don't know if it's just the way cultural trends work and things cycle in and cycle out, or if there's something happening in the world of spirituality and faith and economics and politics and, mm-hmm. you know, all these different things sort of converging that are causing people to turn to plant medicines and mm-hmm. maybe to turn to alternate um, spiritual modalities because the, the institutions that, are, you know, have been around for a while or, or that were in their communities might not be cutting it for them. Yeah. It is interesting because, um, you know, I think around the time that I was writing a lot of these essays, which were, I don't know, sort of the late Obama years, um, 2014, 2015, um, whenever I was writing about evangelicalism and trans and evangelicalism, um, there were all these studies coming out saying that, like, the religious right is dead and all these people are actually leaving Christianity. There's, um, I don't know, there's like a Pew Forum study i think that everybody kept citing that there were more people than particularly i think more young people than ever before that identified as nuns n-o-n-e-s like people who don't identify um as religious and it's interesting that that's yeah coinciding with all of these other forms of or all these other interests in sort of spiritual things like psychedelics would be one um part of it you know astrology is really huge right now um where do you where do you where do you fall on that are you like do you know everything about your sign and no i know nothing i mean i find it again like so appealing if anybody reads a horoscope to me or something i I, like i understand why those things are appealing and why it's it's compelling to believe um in those things because it is it's a narrative it's a way to make sense of your life and i mean that's what religion is it's 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 a narrative about your identity about history and um 
you know, I think it's naive to think like, oh, we can just like get rid of organized religion and people are not going to have that basic craving or impulse, that religious impulse. And so I think, I don't know, it seems like what we're seeing now is people who are, you know, don't feel comfortable in those traditional religions that are sort of looking for a religious experience in a lot of different places, you know, whether it's like even something like CrossFit or like these very intense diet and lifestyle trends. Um, they have kind of like this religious aspect to them where it governs every aspect of your life. You know, it's a way to limit your options the same way that religion sort of limited your options by dictating this very strict set of rules that you followed. Um, wow. That's funny that you say that. Cause I was hiking with my dog, you know, like this week or the week before last, and it was early in the morning and I'm up in the hills here in LA and I'm coming down the trail and there's like a little park area and I see this group of people and they're like twenties and thirties or whatever. And it's clearly like an exercise group, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of them. There's probably like 50 of them, 60 of them. And they're in a circle and they're all like clapping and singing and chanting. And I, the first thing that popped into my head, I was like, well, here's a cult like, <laughs> immediately, yeah. you know, and I was sort of joking, but then you, you talk about CrossFit and the way it sort of, you know, it performs a, a similar function. And I don't think that's inaccurate. And I think that people are, I think people are starved for community. Like, I guess my, yeah. I don't know, like on the one hand, it's like, Ooh, creepy, a cult built around like hyper exercise. And then, the other part of me is like, wow, it could be worse. You know, like people just want to be fit and have friends and like take care of themselves. <laughs> you know, like yeah. Yeah. There are, that's true. I mean, they're not, yeah. Starting Holy Wars or whatever, you know, there, there's a lot. There, not, there's, yet. not yet. <laughs> they're, you know, they do hold the CrossFit, the worldwide games here in Madison, Wisconsin. They were um, just actually, I think last month here in town. Um, and it's very intense. Like I didn't go to them myself, but I had a friend who went to report on it. Um, and yeah, I mean, they do, they do see themselves as, as, um, you know, this institution that, I don't know, they have these large global competitions and who knows where it'll go. Well, Megan, I think we have a to-do list for you. I think you need to drop acid and start doing CrossFit immediately after this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I think that might be good for my writing, just generally. <laughs> That'll be your next collection. And speaking of your writing, uh, congratulations on your book. Oh, thank you. Uh, it is a collection of essays, and uh, you kind of alluded to it a minute ago, talking about how it all came together sort of in like the late Obama years. But um, can you talk a bit about, you know, the... The common, you know, the common thread for listeners who might not be familiar um, that kind of runs through the book and the different essays in it, and maybe talk a little bit about why you gravitated to this form. Yeah, sure. So I guess the there's sort of two threads that run throughout the book and intersect at different moments. Um, I write a lot about growing up evangelical and leaving the faith, um, and then also you know, how the faith has evolved since I've left. So I wrote a, an essay for Harper's last spring about Mike Pence, the vice president, and uh, how he helped evangelicals or convinced evangelicals to vote for Trump. Um, I wrote, yeah, so a lot about, you know, and, and all sort of talking about my own experience and also sort of these larger trends within the church. And then uh, the other thread in the book is about the Midwest, um, which is also, I mean, to me, it feels like, 
those themes are very interconnected because they're part of my experience. Um, yeah, so I, I write about, um, you know, living in Madison. Um, my husband and I moved back to Michigan for a year in 2015. And uh, I wrote an essay about that and just how, you know, we, we moved back to basically the town where I'd grown up and sort of talked about how it had changed over the years. And, um, yeah, just sort of what it means to live in the Midwest during a time of political and economic uncertainty. Um, and then as to um, how I was drawn to the form, I actually started off as a fiction writer. Um and was hoping to just write like short stories and novels and very um, unexpectedly sort of gravitated toward nonfiction in my late 20s. Um, I took a nonfiction workshop and just like, I don't know, really fell in love with the form, felt like I was able to say things in a much more direct way than I was trying to, to say sort of obliquely in fiction. Um, and so I just started writing essays. I think I started writing essays at a time when I was really trying to make sense of my whole experience, both like, what does it mean to be a former Christian? What did that whole experience mean? You know, I think at the time it felt like, uh, like that experience was very meaningless in a way, or that I felt like I had wasted a lot of time that I'd been duped. Um, and so I think writing about my experience being Christian and then leaving Christianity was a way to help make sense of that and give it sort of a larger meaning. Um, have your, and then have, also, have your family members read your book? Um, they haven't read my book yet. I assume they're going to, they've read some of the individual essays cause they're online. Um, and yeah, we had like an interesting debate about particularly, so I wrote an essay about the theology of hell, um, and sort of my struggles with it when I was at Bible college and that was the one that we, I think I know for sure that they read that one cause we, we had a discussion about it and it was actually a very civil discussion. Um, they like gave me all their counter evidence of things they thought I had gotten wrong. And I sort of just listened cause I had already, you know, wrote what I believed in the essay. Um, but yeah, I don't know. They're not, they're not incredibly interested in my writing, which is, is fine with me. Um, I feel I don't. I, I don't really think about them as a readership when I'm writing because I think it would be kind of paralyzing to do so. <laughs> <laughs> so I just kind of just compartmentalize that that part. Um, but yeah, I assume you know now that it's out, they're gonna get a copy and read it. Do you have any siblings or other family members who have had similar crises of faith, or are you are you the one? It's yeah. I, so I'm the oldest of five children, um, and there's one other child, my brother, who ended up uh, leaving Christianity. And everyone else has stayed uh, in the faith, and you know they've all sort of like negotiated their own place within it. Like some of them are a little bit more liberal than others, um, and a little more open than you know, say my parents were when we were growing up. Um, I do have actually my youngest, my youngest sister is uh, a missionary to Albania. So, um, you know, she, she like kind of had the opposite trajectory of me. Like she started off when she was in high school, was not very interested in Christianity and wanted to go to film school. And she actually went to NYU to the Tisch school and, um, wanted to be a filmmaker and then kind of had this opposite, like a 
conversion experience, basically, where she um, she realized that she wanted to be a missionary, and uh, she dropped out of film school and went to Moody Bible Institute, where I had just left, um, to study theology there. So that was an interesting experience, and we... I don't know. We, we talked about it a lot at the time. And then that's another thing where it's like, you know, this has been, this was all like 10 years ago and we've kind of just moved on and we have a close relationship today, but we don't really talk about our respective differences. Well, you know, ultimately aren't spiritual undertakings always personal and individual at the end of it. I mean, there's only so much you can do in concert with other people in a way that's authentic. Like you've got to, at some point, figure out for yourself what works for you and what you believe. Yeah. Like you can't, yeah. you can't, you can't right? Like, it's like, I know that there's such a thing as spiritual community and ideally that happens within a family, but you know, people are going to have different, they're going to be wired differently or they're going to have different takes on things. That seems like the natural course of it. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I, I think that's something I had to come to terms with, particularly with my sister, is just being like, you know, she clearly needed this for some reason that I don't understand the same way I needed to leave it, you know. And it's funny because I think at the time that I was leaving the faith, I thought I had all these very rational, logical reasons. Um, you know, it was all about these problems with the doctrine. And like, the more I looked back on it, I think it was a lot of emotional issues. It was, you know, a lot of stuff that just didn't resonate with me. Probably a lot to do with the people who were teaching these things that mm -hmm. sort of rubbed me the wrong way. You know, I don't think anyone, I mean, we're not like these rational algorithms that respond, you know, to our environment in a very machine-like way. There's also, it's a lot of these sort of, you know, emotional and uh, subliminal things that sway us. Well, to believe one thing or the other. It's funny because you're, you know, as the eldest of five, like you're supposed to be the one who is like the super missionary. Like you're supposed to be like yeah. the, the kid who like stayed closest to the, uh, to the, to the line or whatever. And you're the one who diverged. So I guess that blows up like the order of birth thing. Yeah. I don't know how that worked out. Yeah. I'm not only the oldest of five, I'm the oldest of all the grandchildren too in my family. Cause we were very close with our like cousins too. And they're you know, we have this very large family and all of these like 20 cousins are all still Christians too into their early adulthood now. So I don't know. I don't know why that happened or what was unique about my experience. Well, but, um, you're obviously, yeah. you're obviously super bright and, uh, a, a wonderful writer and yet you were homeschooled until 10th grade. And I don't mean to presume things about homeschooling, but I've always been, well, I've always been, uh, in awe of anybody who, could possibly take that on and do a good job of it. And also like confused as to whether or not that's even possible. Like who, who can actually teach a kid every single subject and, and do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah. Well, we weren't, we weren't taught like we were like, we were technically unschooled. We didn't use that term, but that's sort of the tradition we were in where my mom believed that we would just learn everything we needed to know from experiencing life basically. So we didn't sit down and have, like lessons during the day. She didn't teach us. Like we had some textbooks that we would get in the mail from some Christian wholesale education company uh, every year, but we didn't, we like rarely read them or did lessons in them. Um, we were really like just left to our own devices for most of the time. So I don't know how we learned anything really. I mean, I read a lot as a kid because I like to read, but we like, we didn't do any science really. Um, 
you know, like my mom believed, I mean, we had a, we had a textbook that taught creationism, like basically everything you need to know about earth sciences is in the book of Genesis and the creation story. So I didn't experience like a traditional science education until I went to school in 10th grade. Um, and I was like extremely behind and I don't think I ever caught up like my, my science knowledge. I mean, I, I read about a bunch of like popular science books when I dropped out of Moody and tried to catch myself up. But, um, yeah, I like definitely didn't have the foundation that I was supposed to have as a child. Okay. Well, that, that at least makes more sense because I'm sitting, yeah. I'm sitting here listening to you going, guys, like she's, you know, she's clearly got like a, like she's got a handle on it. She's figured it out. Oh, like, no, I feel, no, I feel like I, I feel like direly behind in a lot of areas. Um, and I'm just like waiting for people to find out but see, how I, much basic stuff I don't know. I think people who have that, that paranoia sometimes are the ones who are the most uh, well-read. Like, I don't know. Like when I hear that, that sort of thing, I'm always like, well, this is the person who's actually like reading popular science books to catch up, which is more than most people who sort of like slept through biology in high school. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder, maybe if this is from my parents brainwashing me about the uselessness of public school, but did did you feel like you learned that much, like in the first, I don't know, up until high school? Like, do you learn a lot that really sticks with you? I peaked in junior high. Uh, Really? My ninth grade year was the last year of schooling that I really, like of formal schooling that I was really engaged with in a serious way. Um, I was an excellent student in like straight A's across, not even like an A minus, you know, from junior high until 10th grade. And then 10th grade, like, I mean, I was, I was a good student, like in terms of the the numbers and the outcome all the way through. But Mm -hmm. like my last semester of high school, I failed calculus. I didn't give a shit. I didn't, I didn't want to go. I was just in like junior year. It was sort of like, you know, it was headed in that direction. So it was kind of like a steady decline after 10th grade where part of it, I think was, um, boredom. Part of it, I think was, um, just lack of discipline and just being like a adolescent shit. And then I think the other thing, uh, is that, you know, there were some traumas that unfolded around me, like not necessarily in my immediate family, but like friends of mine, um, there was a, like my buddy's brother died of cancer. My neighbor, um, her mom like dropped dead of a heart attack one day after school. Oh, wow. My first best friend lost his, and, and then like that same week, my first best friend from growing up in Wisconsin lost his brother and we had to go up for that funeral. His brother was just nine when he died or something like that. And it was just like this this series of uh like catastrophic like tragic deaths that i think yeah i think factored in in ways that i didn't even realize now like i guess maybe that's me like it might, it might be revisionist history like oh that's why i was just like fuck everything <laughs> well no i mean those things do affect you especially at that young of an age right. and probably in a way that you're not aware of at the time so well and especially that... especially around like matters of faith and spirituality like there were there were a lot of questions and there was a lot of anger you know it was like mm-hmm. like i was not finding any kind of answer or um solace in the dogma that had been handed to me and so i think that when and like, I would pose this as a question to you rather than making this like me diving into my adolescent spirituality for like the 74th time on this show. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you know, when you start to have this crisis of faith as a young person 
and you start to have questions that are really legitimate and feel like they have a lot of ground beneath them. Like, were you angry in a, in a similar way where you're like, and maybe not in, a, in like a textbook angry way, like where you're like angry and shouting and clenching your fists, but maybe like a subtler internal burn mm-hmm. where, where it's like, you know, the adults in my life, they lied to me or they weren't shooting straight or I didn't get the real answers. Like they, I've been misled, I guess, or that kind of feeling. Yeah. Was that for Yeah. Yeah. I, did, I mean, uh, it's, it's complicated because anger was not an emotion that I was allowed to have as a woman in the church. Um, that was just not in my arsenal of emotions, I guess. Um, but I clearly did have a lot of anger and I think I, you know, for a long time I took it out on myself. I, you know, there was a few years after Bible school where I was drinking very heavily and engaging in a lot of self-harm. Um, like, what does that mean? Just like boozing a lot, smoking cigarettes, or, or like, were you like cutting yourself or anything like that? Or uh, more so, just drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, Me too. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After, as as sort of a corollary to you leaving. Um, or like sort of not finding the answers you wanted to in Catholicism or just partially, partially, but it was also that I had been raised in like a just say no kind of culture and (laughs) all of the drugs had been lumped together into one pile and they were all equally bad and terrible and they had no redeeming qualities and they were bad, bad, bad. And then, then you smoke a joint and you're like, this was fun. Like what the fuck? Like I've been sold a bill of goods and you know, you spoke earlier about um, how maybe the crisis of faith that you had or like a factor in it is the fact that you didn't have teachers who necessarily resonated with you. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's very true for me, too. And I think true for most people, you know, had somebody sat me down. I always say this now. It's like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and it's all I mean, it's sort of speculative, but. If somebody had sat me down and like somebody I trusted and been like, okay, pot is this, Mm -hmm. mushrooms are this, cocaine is this, meth is this, you know, don't do this one. (laughs) If you want to, if you want to try this one, like just, you know, don't, don't drive or, you know what I'm saying? Like I didn't get any accurate information. And I think had I been given accurate information that would have tested out, I think I Mm -hmm. would, would have been less self-destructive because once I found out that I had been lied to, then it was like, well, I'm going to find everything out for myself. And yeah. Know. Yeah. That's interesting to consider. I don't know. I have considered that it's like, cause I wasn't, you know, like nobody had like nobody in my immediate or extended family even drank socially when I was growing up. It was a very foreign concept and, you know, the same thing, whereas all drugs were lumped together and alcohol was lumped in with it. Um, but I guess in my experience, maybe because of, I don't know, I mean, the way that, um, the time of my life when I was sort of starting to indulge in things, there was nothing like joyful or liberating about it. I was like in a very dark place psychologically and like just wanted to disappear. Um, not in a like, let go of your ego, sort of connect with the universe (laughs) way. Like I just wanted to be totally gone. Um, and so I don't, I don't know how much of that was due to, you know, whatever genetics, um, or, you know, just sort of the, the depression that I was in during that time. But, um, 
yeah, I don't know. It's it's, it's it, there's it's interesting to to think about that and well, the role that it played. Well, yeah, no, it's bringing to mind this the the truth that you know it's one thing to be angry because you feel like you didn't get information that could have been helpful to you or that people lied to you or just misled you or that you just got bad information or whatever. But there's also something fundamentally sad about breaking from your the tradition that you were raised in and feeling disconnected from it. Yeah, it is. It's like a grieving process. And I think I didn't realize at the time that I was grieving that and that I had to leave behind, you know, not just for a while, my family, but all of my friends in this community that was, um, you know, part of my whole life. And also this idea of a future, you know, like I think the, the thing that was hardest for me, more even so than the community or like not believing in God anymore, was this idea that like history was not going anywhere anymore because that was that narrative was very strong when I was growing up was that like everything is leading toward this final point of glorification where Christ is going to return the earth's going to be restored like perfection is going to be um reinstated um on earth and so to realize that like well history is not really going anywhere we're all just kind of stuck here life doesn't have any intrinsic meaning i mean this is stuff that i feel like western culture went through like during modernism basically like stuff that people realized centuries ago and we sort of dealt with as a culture in mass um you know in the late 19th early 20th century and um i was going through that in a way that was very isolated and very alone and yeah i did feel like okay i've been given the wrong information like clearly everybody else has known this <laughs> all along and uh i'm the only one who didn't get the memo and i do i mean like when i hear people like you talking about like oh i just like never connected with you know religion or people who ended up leaving you know christianity or whatever when they were like 15 or 17 years old and it's like very common like i think most people who end up leaving a faith tradition or leaving breaking from their parents faith tradition do so like pretty early in adolescence or early adulthood and i was doing this in like in my mid my mid 20s and it just felt very late and i felt like i had like come to this realization very late um and I don't know why that was. I don't know if it was just because we were so sheltered as children and that, you know, I like didn't have access to the information I needed to until pretty late or it's hard not to feel that I was just like very naive in a way and to like blame myself for it. So I think probably a lot of the anger I was experiencing was, yeah, like directed at myself. Like, why did I believe this? You know, why couldn't I have seen through it? Yeah, I guess that's a part of it, too. See, it's so multifaceted. It's like... Yeah, it's like anger, it's grief, and then it's also like self hatred and blaming yourself and <laughs> feeling because I I have this like same the same kind of feelings about myself like why didn't I like yeah so people didn't tell me like why didn't I pick up a fucking book and read about it you know like it's not like it's not like I didn't have access to the library you know like or. Why? Or the in- like the internet was a thing when I was in high school. Yeah, it's like I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah. But you can't be too hard on yourself. I mean, for God's sakes, you were. I mean, pun intended. You know, for God's sake, you uh, <laughs> were you were raised in a pretty intense culture that it's natural to have had to take some time to sort things out. I mean, you just didn't have access. It's sort of designed to prevent access, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think really the thing that got me out of that 
feeling sort of sorry for myself and feeling anger is actually writing about those experiences because mm. I feel like that helped me in a way to gain control over them or give some sort of new meaning to them. And in some cases realize like there were some good things. I think that I am like in a weird way grateful that I grew up in that culture because I think it is a really unique way to grow up and that I still see the world in different ways, maybe because of that. Well, I know I think it's, you know, we have a lot in common, even though we're not exactly, we don't have exactly the same uh, background. But when I was growing up, my dad would always say to me, you know, faith, family, friends, like, you know, it's like, he's like, my dad is like Ward Cleaver. He's like a great guy, but yeah. just like very like, you know, kind of like uh, textbook dad stuff. But, you know, it's the kind of thing that like, as an adolescent, you might sort of roll your eyes, but uh, I always go back to that in my head is that like for whatever differences I may have when it comes down to the details of dogma um, with my dad or what tradition you want to follow or who you want to vote for or whatever, like that's actually really good advice. Uh, mm-hmm. Like that's in terms of the fundamentals, I don't, I don't think you can boil it down much better than that. And it doesn't mean you have to sign up for some religion or join some cult or something, but it just means that like tending to your spirit uh, has to be a top a top priority in your life if you want to have things in order and that you got to be connected to your family and you've got to mm-hmm. take take care of your friends like that's that i don't know i like that I, that brings me comfort like that i I'm, I'm a fan of simplicity and things that are practical and useful and um yeah i've always kind of used that as a way back to my family and you know I don't know. Not that I was ever that far, but I, I, do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that is something that is people find very comforting and assuring about religion. And I think that is something that, you know, yeah, pe- like we were saying before, like people are looking for that in other places now, um, you know, and I don't know. I think it's still everything feels very in flux right now. Um, and I think that it'll be interesting to see uh, what type of what the spiritual landscape looks like in America in the next, you know, several decades, I imagine it will change quite a lot. You would think. And, and, you know, you, you talk about like the difficulties of having been raised in a faith and then leaving it. But however far from uh, that faith you wind up uh, landing as an adult, the fact that you were raised in it, it does offer you a set of experiences and tools and like a level of engagement with big questions, like even if, mm-hmm. even if like your, you know, your ability to question things is really like heavily circumscribed or whatever, like, I don't know, like it, it does prepare you in a way to set out on your own, like, and it does predispose you to want to entertain these things if you're a person who is like readerly and curious and like open. Yeah, I do think there is, um, yeah, for one, like, the concern with big questions and like, what does this ultimately mean? You know, that was something we were constantly asking ourselves as Christians. I think that has, that still informs my view on a lot of things. Um, and then also it seems very counterintuitive, um, but you know, because of stereotypes about Christians, but I really feel like I was taught a lot of critical thinking skills, um, as a Christian, just because we were constantly critiquing the culture and talking about how it was false, you know, our, you know, pastors and my parents used to refer to the world. And this was basically anything that was like the secular world, like anything that wasn't Christianity. 
And we were always talking about these different messages that the world was trying to give us, you know. Um, and it was in everything. It was in a- advertising, television, popular culture. You know, we were constantly kind of doing this type of deconstruction. Um, and, uh, you know, and then in Bible school, too, I mean, we had, like, very – we were taught um, – like a very intense form of hermeneutics, um, very close reading, basically. Um, you know, we read the Bible in a way that was a lot more intense than like your average lay person um, and a lot more uh, rigorous. And so I, I think d- those I just, skills... I just listened to the audio book, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I'm sure you get something out of it that way too. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think just like having those Having those skills um, have carried over to a lot of the work I do now as a as a reader and a writer. Um, I didn't, you know, it took me a long time to realize that maybe that's where I got some of those, at least those inclinations to, you know, look at things with that sort of scrutiny and intensity. So, what did your parents do growing up? Like, did they work in like the church, or were they? Yeah, my mom, um, no, my mom was always a stay-at-home mom. She was trained as a nurse, and then she never practiced. Um, she kind of stayed home and, and homeschooled us, quote-unquote. But, yeah, um, my dad, so my, when I refer to my parents, I'm actually referring to my mom and my stepfather. So my biological dad actually left our family when I was uh, 11 years old. And uh, I actually don't have a relationship with him today, but my mom remarried and is still remarried to my stepfather. Um, And he was in industrial sales for many years. He sold lubrication systems to big factories like Caterpillar and places like that. So he traveled. That was one of the reasons why we moved so much growing up is he kept getting transferred to different places around the Midwest. Um, and he was like the sales rep for that state, basically. Um, and then around the time I went to college, they both um, became small business owners. They own a gas station um, in Michigan right now. So that's what they do for their business. It's a good, I mean, people need gas, right? Yeah, they still do. I mean, yeah, nothing is, uh, I don't know if electric cars are ever going to come back. But yeah, for now, people need gas. But it's it's weird. It's like they um, so they have a, a gas station and a car wash, and um, the car wash is like very dependent on the weather. So you know we've had like if they don't get a lot of snow in a particular winter, not as many people wash their car. Or if it's not the right amount of like snow and sunny days, they talk about their livelihood like the way that farmers do. <laughs> <laughs> They're very much like dependent on these huge, these natural forces that are totally out of their control. Um, and so, and so wait, so like your stepdad is in the same faith tradition as your mom, like that was in place. And then is your mm-hmm. biological dad also part of that faith tradition? Uh, he was kind of like, okay, so my mom and my biological dad met at Wheaton college. So they were both Christians. Um, but he was always a little bit more, I think, on the fence about it. And he actually had a lot of mental health issues, which is part of the reason why they divorced. Um, and so I don't know, it's kind of hard to know where he was. But I, and, and a lot of it, you know, at the, when I was a child, I didn't really understand 
um, exactly like the differences between their beliefs because they raised us. You know, we were we went to church every Sunday. We were like very much a, a Christian home, even when he was um, married to my mom. Um, and then over the years, you know, kind of like hearing more of the story from other family members, it's, it turns out I think he was maybe not quite on board with it as much as she was. Um, and you, and you say you're not in touch with him at all. Like, so you wouldn't be able to like find that out. <laughs> no, well, no, it's funny. I, um, sort of got in touch with some of his family members, like his sister reached out to me through like my writing. Cause I had, um, I had that article. I think I mentioned I wrote about Mike Pence for Harper's magazine last, um, last spring. And like, heard from all these people who I had not heard from since like childhood who were like, Hey, I saw you had this piece in Harper's. And, um, yeah. So one of the people who reached out was my dad's sister who I hadn't seen since I was a child either. And so she has kind of caught me up a little bit on what's going on with that side of the family, but they all live on the West coast in Oregon. So, um, yeah, I haven't seen any of them since I was very young. Wow. Well, how do you identify today? Like in terms of your, spirituality and religious uh, affiliation or lack thereof you kind of talked about being an atheist in the in the aftermath of of your initial crisis of faith but i imagine you probably don't identify as an atheist or is that wrong i would say i'm more agnostic today so yeah i mean like we were talking about uncertainty i just feel like it's really um it's really like pompous to say that you know you you know for sure the same way it's like really problematic to say you know for sure that there is a god it's like if you can't answer the question in the affirmative you can't answer it in the negative you know so i don't know i guess agnosticism makes more sense to me today i do try i mean i've tried different ways of cultivating a spiritual life i have um done meditation and it is something i'm more open to today um in general but i don't have like a like a faith practice um, or a discipline that I do necessarily. Um, but it is, I guess it's something I'm just generally more interested in and curious about as opposed to how I was, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, and what about your reading life? You know, do you read about this stuff? Yeah. I mean, I do a lot of, i most of what I have been reading lately is for, like research, like nonfiction stuff for various essays I was writing. Um, and, but then for my own pleasure, uh, I've mostly just been reading fiction lately. It's funny cause when I was, I, I sort of like reached, when I was writing fiction, I kind of reached this terminus with fiction where I was like, oh, I just like can't read fiction anymore cause I'm writing it. I'm totally immersed in it. Um, and then, yeah, once I, after I've been writing essays for many years, I had the opposite experience where now all I want to read is fiction, particularly like novels that are written by women in their fifties. Like that's pretty much all I want to read <laughs> lately. And I don't know why that is, but like, yeah, I read, I love the Rachel Cusk trilogy. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And I read, um, let's see that Magda Sazbo, Saz, I can't remember how to pronounce her name, um, wrote this novel called The Door that was translated several years ago, and I never got around to reading it. I just read that over the summer. Um, but yeah, I just want to hear like women with wisdom talking about their lives in a way that feels kind of essayistic, but as class as fiction. I don't know. I have a very narrow 
um, I like class of fiction that I enjoy reading right now, but I really, really enjoy it. But it's bad. Like, that's the thing. Like, I'm always mystified by people who like are like way wide open in terms of their reading tastes and just love to just read things and try things out. <laughs> I'm like, I feel very specific about it. I feel like I, yeah. I feel like I have to read books that I really need in my life, like for instruction or something, you know? Yeah, I feel like that's, I think that's the natural thing that happened once you've been reading for a while, too. I mean, I think when you first start, everything is new and you want to read a variety of things. But it's like after, you know, you get to a certain age, you're like, you know what you like. Um, and yeah, I don't want to waste time on books that I don't enjoy. But you also know what you need. Like, I, I and, and you don't have, and you also have probably less free time. So you're like, okay, I got like 20 minutes with this thing before I like pass out. Most likely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that's it too. I know. I feel like I have way less time for like leisure reading and I, I really do need it. Like even, I don't know, even though I'm not writing fiction, even though I'm writing nonfiction, I do feel like it's really necessary to read, um, to read fiction and just to keep up a reading life. I think it does affect, um, just like my sanity as a person and my ability to write and think on the page. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, um, you said you, you're working on nonfiction right now. So are you working on more essays or are you working on something different? I'm supposed to be writing a book. Um, I got like, so when I um, signed the deal for the essays, I, it was technically a two book deal. Um, so I've been doing a lot of research for this second project, which has been difficult and kind of evolving. Um, you know what it should be? Yeah, you know what it should be called? What? I'm supposed to be writing a book. <laughs> That is, yeah, that is definitely the working title. <laughs> it's tricky. It's hard because I've been an essay. I've never tried to write a book-length project, obviously. My form has been the essay, and I feel like I'm so, like, ingrained in that form. It's so intuitive to me. It's really hard to try to write something longer. Like, everything feels just very baggy and unnecessary, um, which I guess I guess that's how it feels. But I don't know. Um, but, yeah, then I've, you know, of course, procrastinate and take on other essay projects. So, um, I actually wrote a piece about homeschooling, um, over the summer for M plus one, which is, I think going to be in their winter issue maybe. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time like researching the history of homeschooling, um, in preparation for that essay and then started reading like Rousseau and stuff too, cause it seemed relevant. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I've been working on a little bit of everything. And what about like I can't let you go without asking asking you about this uh, Pence essay that you wrote and Trump and Pence and the evangelical wing of the Republican Party, which is like pretty much the most um, enthusiastic and reliable voting block for Trump, right? I mean, and how that happened and more, yeah, more uh, evangelicals voted for Trump than voted for George W. Bush which is remarkable to me. Why? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of different theories about it. My, my piece about Pence was actually very, very narrow because I was writing about him at a time when people had already written a lot about him. There was that big Jane Mayer piece in the New Yorker and people had already sort of gone over, you know, his biography, his, you know, ties to big business, all of these sort of narratives about him. Um, so I wrote about, uh, so this is kind of difficult to explain in a nutshell, but I'll try to. Um, I was trying to write about the narratives about him within evangelicalism. 
And it seemed like the common narrative from what I was reading was that he was going to be this mediator figure or an intercessor where he was going to sort of um, attenuate Trump's moral excesses and help sort of bring him back back to this path where he was going to help Christians. Um, And so as Christians are talking about this, they keep referring back to these Old Testament narratives where there were, um, you know, so in periods in which the Jews were in exile, say, in Babylon. Um, They were under this oppressive pagan power, um, under these sort of authoritarian rulers like Nebuchadnezzar. And then there was, you know, there would be this figure like Daniel, say, um, who was like um, a Jewish man who was, you know, from the Hebrew elite who would go serve in this pagan court, and he would sort of help Nebuchadnezzar do good things for the Jews. And so what was happening in Christian discourse around the time of the 2016 election was that people were saying, like, oh, Pence is going to be our Daniel. Like, you know, Trump is this ugly sort of Nebuchadnezzar, this, like, pagan ruler who doesn't believe in our God. But there's this tradition, you know, there's this history um, of God protecting his people by sending these intercessor figures and who rise up to be like number two in the in the pagan court of their era. So um, that's what my essay was about. Um, and it was like very difficult to write because I had to explain this whole history of like Jewish exile narratives and then talk about how Christians were using them. Because like evangelicals today, even though they are ostensibly in power. Now, they believe that they're in exile within American culture. They believe that America is a post-Christian nation and that they're in this very, like, tenuous position within the culture. And so, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of factors that convince them to vote for Trump, but part of that narrative was that, like, okay, we've got one of our people on the inside and he's going to help, you know, do things like get the Supreme Court nominee, nominee that we want and, um, you know, protect religious liberties and things like that. And, and Pence is like really like all in on that. Like it's not just like convenient for him because he knows. Yeah. No, that's the thing is that, um, you know, I went into this thinking like, oh, these I'm just writing about sort of these narratives surrounding him. But like I started listening to his speeches and he like very um, deliberately evokes these passages from the Old Testament in his speeches as this sort of like dog whistle, um, you know, rhetoric for evangelicals, like people who know the, what these passages are about. They're sort of connecting the dots and like, oh, he's talking about, you know, exile or he's talking about, um, you know, sort of aligning himself with these Old Testament figures um, and so, yeah, I do think that he's aware on it, aware of it on some level. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that he like created the story by any means, but I think that my sense is that he is aware of it and sort of plays into it. But I mean, like, is it ever, is it politically expedient for him? Do you think that like deep down he's like, eh, it's bullshit, but that these people. <laughs> no, like, I don't think, I don't think he, I mean, that was another thing I went into it thinking that. You know, this with this very cynical idea that he was just using religious narratives to exploit people and he was just obsessed with power and everything. And, uh, you know, the more I read about him and, you know, I like I went to his church, his home church in Indianapolis and talked to his pastor for like two hours. And um, I think he's legit. Like he is a true believer. Um, And which is like kind of more frightening, (laughs) right? Yeah. He's not just using this as this like opiate of the masses or whatever. Like he really believes in these, 
you know, Old Testament stories and this idea that America is like continuing on this, these, you know, carrying on these legacies um, of, you know, yeah, I don't know. It, it was it, it was very interesting to. I, I think I didn't realize uh, how deep it was until I started researching it, and then I got very into it, and I haven't really revisited any of that since I since I published the piece um, and haven't really kept up with what he's doing or what his role is in the White House. It seems unclear. But um, yeah, it's all like I'm very. You know, there there are days when I'm like, there's he's obviously implicated in all this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was handpicked by Paul Manafort and, um, you know, uh, there's no way that he's scot-free. Yeah, no, I don't think his hands are clean at all. No. But then I'll sometimes read something and it's like, well, maybe he is actually shrewd and has kept quiet and found ways to, like, take himself off of email chains to not that he's not that he's like innocent, but that he's like going to be hard to pin down. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that if Trump does go down, he is going to be prime to, to step in. And what scares me about the, uh, like an evangelical, um, president of, of his degree of, uh, intensity is this notion that like, you know, they're happy for the second coming. And, you know, like this world is just like a stopover onto the way to the promised land. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like they're not yeah, as, they a, they're not as afraid of Armageddon as they should be, you know? Right. Yeah. Why? I mean, especially on things like climate change it's like why of course that's why they don't they're not interested in saving this earth because they know it's going to go up in flames in the end anyway you know i mean like no i don't think any evangelical will say that outright but that is why they're not interested you know in sort of this those you know preservation and conservation efforts well i will leave you with this thought I think I might st- I might keep talking to you if if you say something interesting. So just be warned. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, you know I I'm a fan of I can I like reading the Christian left. Um, you know there are certain writers in that tradition that inspire me and that get me excited uh, about the possibility that there could be like a more open and tolerant and interesting and practical application, uh, of Christian dogma. And uh, like, it just, mm-hmm. I don't know, it just feels like, feels like sometimes it's a, it's a failure of the teacher and not the teaching sort of like what we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, sometimes I'm like, you know, a person like Megan O'Geeblin, you know, who has all this experience in the church and went to Moody Bible college, like maybe the answer is to like to re-engage as opposed to distance. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Cause if we, like ju- if, if you change just it from the inside, yeah. Or just like, we need people who can, or at least present, um, a different understanding of these teachings that mm-hmm. like reflects your values as they exist right now. You wouldn't have to like reconstitute yourself. Mm-hmm. But if you, if, if people like me and you and whoever else has gone through something like this, simply turn our back on it, well, then that's kind of like seeding the field to the people that we felt might have uh, misled us or gotten it wrong or had like uh, corrupt intent, you know? Yeah. Well, there's, there is kind of a large debate about that among younger evangelicals now, many of whom are not calling themselves evangelicals anymore because they've become really disillusioned with that kind of perversion of the faith, particularly the the degree to which Christianity has been bound up with uh, right-wing politics 
and um you know has uh like the know, like the prosperity gospel or whatever and yeah prosperity gospel and also just the fact that for a lot of you know when i was growing up it was like evangelicalism was synonymous with the republican party um and you know, there, there there are a lot of younger evangelicals who are concerned with social justice, who are, you know, want to include um, LGBT communities in the church and don't want to, you know, talk about like, oh, God's going to send you to hell, um, you know. And I think that there's a lot of discussion about whether yeah, they can still call themselves evangelicals or not. So there, there's a lot of um, young people that are now identifying as ex-evangelical, um, as sort of like people who grew up in that culture and have since become more liberal. Um, and some of them have sort of gravitated toward more mainline congregations like, you know, Lutheranism or Episcopal churches or things like that. Um, and some of them have actually like like don't go to church anymore, but still identify as vaguely Christian and maybe a li- are a little bit more mystical. See, that's um, what I. That's like I want to join like the vaguely Christian. That's what I want. That's the movement. Oh, there's <laughs> lots of them right now. Yeah, there's. Uh, this, this is a perfect time to do that if that's what you want to do. Well, I just. Yeah, I, I, I want it to be called vaguely Christian. Vaguely Christian, yeah, you could be the, yeah. They did. They definitely need some branding help right now because nobody's come up with a with a better word um, than evangelical. There's like, yeah, that that term, particularly after the 2016 election, has become really contentious because it does have political connotations, and there's a lot of anti-Trump evangelicals who don't want to be grouped under that umbrella anymore. Good. Yeah. I know. So I think, yeah, it is. I mean, I think things are going to change within the church. And I have thought, I don't know, I've thought about, you know, what if it did change to a degree? Would I be okay going back? I went to a Unitarian church a couple of years ago just to like check it out. But I just felt like it was so like foofy. I don't know, like people were coming up to give prayers for their cat and stuff. And <laughs> I was just like, what is the point? You know, it's like, there's a point at which it becomes so open that it's about nothing. Yeah. And maybe that's just like the latent fundamentalist in me that, um, you know, I just like part of me maybe really wants some sort of like a hardline doctrine or something, but I don't know, you have to have some sort of meaning. You have to be offering people something beyond just, you know, feeling good about themselves. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, i I agree with you. Like I gravitate to Buddhism and, uh, there's like something called the five precepts mm-hmm. or I think there's also like the, there's a list of 14 too, but they boil it down to five and I don't read them every day, but I try to read them regularly and, or like the noble eightfold path or, you know, they're mm-hmm. like, that's not nothing, you know, <laughs> that's not like wide open, do whatever you want. It's actually pretty hard to live by that stuff and nobody does it perfectly is kind of the emphasis uh when it's taught but it's like the stars you steer by and um it's hard to lead a like a good solid life you know it's hard to do this um like to lead a spiritual life of real substance um and rigor you know it's it takes work yeah it does. I know. I think I have a lot more respect for Buddhism than I do these sort of like um, maybe marginal kind of new agey forms of Christianity. Just because what you're saying, you know, I think there are, it does require a lot of discipline and a lot of work. And I think that's part of what's appealing to people too, is this idea that you can, you know, if you 
follow this path, um, and it is maybe the challenge is part of the appeal too, but if you follow it, then you're going to have this transformation. You're going to become another person. You know, I think that idea of transformation is really appealing to people. Um, it's very appealing to me too. Well, it's just for me, it's like, I, 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 transformation would be awesome. Like, don't get me wrong. And like, maybe I'll be one of these people who has the flash, but like for me, just like basic sanity, like a little peace. Like I don't, yeah. I don't have high hope. You know, like my aspirations are pretty small. Like I just want to catch myself in anger before I speak or act. I want to, um, take care of like depression and, um, you know, like crazy self doubt and all the things that sort of mm-hmm. plague us, you know, in a way that's, um, like healthier and authentic yeah. and causes me to lean into those things rather than to sort of like try to, um, repress them or, you know, mm-hmm. or, or castigate myself for experiencing them, you know, which isn't the answer either. So just right. kind of like, it's like trying to create a, a healthy psychological system of, for myself. That's really what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like probably, um, psychoanalysis played that role for people for a lot of the, the last several decades. And, you know, I don't know, I think people would probably go to therapy for a lot of the same reasons now, but I don't know if it's as a robust solution as it once was. You know, it does feel like more people are looking toward things like meditation and these other sort of spiritual practices. I think, um, I think I always think it feels to me like therapy is like guided, kind of a guided meditation in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like your verbal, like if you're sitting there meditating and you're thinking to yourself like, oh God, I suck. I, I want to die. I hate life. I'm mad at myself. I, I'm sad about my cat. You know, whatever it is. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, you're having all these thoughts. Like in therapy, you're talking them out, you know, and, and if you're in an honest, open, like trusting environment and you're willing to go there with your therapist, then that person can uh, theoretically help guide you through them. And maybe that expedites the process of like healing and transcendence or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know, but, but it's like, where do, where do you find that therapist? (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think I've ever found that therapist. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to therapy during that sort of awful time I was talking about earlier and, uh, maybe wasn't like, I don't know, in a place to benefit from it. Exactly. So I kind of have like, I don't know, I get down about therapy and I I didn't find it useful personally. I know people who find it enormously useful and I know there's all types of different methods. But yeah, I think ideally it would be sort of a guided meditation or a way to, you know, the same thing like with psychedelics do, like just getting your brain out of those rigid patterns and helping you see things in a new way. Yeah. Well, they say like, you know, you take psychedelics, it's like, uh, it's like, you know how you defrag your hard drive or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> it's right. like, it's like, I think there's some science coming back that that's kind of what happens. Yeah. So I would love for that, but without the Christian stuff coming right. out. <laughs> right. Yeah. If I could just get that drug, like maybe I'll just wait until they have some special boutique drug for, um, former evangelicals. Do you think that, do you think that you have, uh, a kind of PSD or PTSD? Uh, I don't know. I've never used that term, but yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think, um, it's funny cause I, I often find myself like defending evangelicalism cause I, I live in a community now where most of my friends are not Christians or have no connection with that 
world at all. And, um, you know, I, I get into a place when I'm here where I, I'm very, like, healthy and happy and sort of like, hey, it's not all bad, you know. Um, and then when I go back to visit my family in Michigan, like, I was back there for – I actually went back for two weeks this summer, which was too long. <laughs> um, and I went to church with my family, and I was, like, very immersed in uh, their world for a long time. And I kind of, yeah, I reverted to um, my angry uh, post-Christian self. And uh, maybe that was PTSD. I don't know. I got very agitated at one point. I believe the Um, term is uh, triggering, right? You were triggered. Yeah, sure, triggered. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Why not? Yeah. But you know, if it's any consolation, I think everybody in some form, when they go back to visit their family, especially for two weeks, and when they're, you know, you're in your 30s, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I I would guess that like a, a solid 90% of people wind up uh, triggered and angry at some point. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It's hard to know how much of that is like the Christian stuff or how much it's just family. Um, but yeah, yeah, I definitely get, I, I think I got to um, be more deliberate about limiting visits in the well, future. Well, I'll tell you what, it's been uh, such a pleasure talking with you, and I'm so glad that we got to um, spotlight your collection in the book club this month. And I just thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me so openly about all this stuff. And I I thank you for writing this book and kind of sharing um, your thoughts and your stories on this subject matter, because I feel like voices like yours who um, dive deep and are really thoughtful about this stuff. Like you've got to have readers out there who are from a similar tradition, who who have a similar kind of confusion, but not might might not be able to articulate it uh, mm-hmm. or language it for themselves. And and that's just one subset of readers. I mean, there are many different kinds of people who will enjoy your book. But I think of those people in particular, and how important a book like this is for somebody who might be like. I don't know, 17 and like, what the fuck, you know? And like, yeah, and that I, would be my ideal reader if I could reach somebody like that for sure. I'm sure, I'm sure you will. And I'm, I, I mean, I'm sure if you haven't heard from, um, that kid, it's, it's going to happen sooner or later. Yeah. yeah. I have heard from, um, some people, I think probably the, I mean, I get emails occasionally from readers, but the people I've heard from the most are definitely people who've grown up in that culture themselves or have left it um because yeah it is a very isolating experience so hopefully it can connect um you know hopefully that my experience resonates in some way with other people well if you ever find yourself really you know feeling lost you can always come out to los angeles and join scientology oh man (laughs) yeah (laughs) we'll see i would love to come to los angeles sometime though i dream about la um i've never been there but it just seems like a wonderful place well get out of here like you know when the winter when the madison winter is, yeah. is like sort of crushing you that, that that's, yeah. that's the best time to be in la anyways because the desert in the winter is when it's at its best so okay if you get out this way look me up okay well, I definitely will. megan it's uh it's great talking to you and congr- yeah thanks so much for having me congratulations again on your book all right thank you All right, that's Megan O'Giblin. Her essay collection is called Interior States. It is the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It is available now from Anchor Books. Megan O'Giblin and the essay collection is Interior States. Go get it. You can find her online at meganogiblin.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle there is at Meg 
O'Giblin. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. As always, thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So I got some more questions. I forgot to answer the question, what's a question you regret not asking? I mean, that, those are, I always feel like I leave jokes on the table, or I, like somebody, you know, it's, it, it's different for different people. I try to ask everything that comes to mind, but sometimes I miss things, you know? I usually, re- like, regret missing jokes, like opportunities to have said something. Or ask, you know, ask something. So many regrets. Uh, Twiggy is learning to to heal off leash. I just want to give you an update on my dog. She's really coming along. Very proud of her. What's your favorite type of pasta? Joe Grantham asks. Joe Grantham Sr. Angel hair. (laughs) 